look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli here. Dave Popovich is away, so we're going to have a great show today. And not because he's only gone, but because we've got some great guests on our show today. You know, if you're considering moving to a different province in retirement or just traveling to another province, you might have to understand what could change and how properly to transfer your health insurance. There's a big issue there. A recent court case came in the Tax Court of Canada foreign pensions. Don't miss this conversation we're going to have about what happens if you want to transfer your pension, your foreign pension to Canada, or if you're inheriting a foreign pension. There are some tax consequences and some big issues. You definitely want to hear that. And we hear some some long-term results, basically. There's been a group study for over 20 years of 50,000 Canadians. And as they've been aging, what are some of the information that's come up? We've got this long-running study on how you can stay healthy for longer. That's going to be great. But first, we talk about being single and retired with our clinical instructor. Now, here's what's happening. Here, I'm going to paint the picture for you. The first part is people are aging. Second of all, we have an aging demographic that also has the fastest growth rate in divorce. This gro- gro- growth rate it also impacts family members, including grandchildren. When you're going through a divorce... When you are divorced and you have to spend time with family members like grandchildren, there's going to be some concerns we have to think about. So, uh, you know, when I, I, all the court cases that I've read or all the divorce cases that I've worked with on, on, uh, on, on this, one of the things that, that, that comes up time and time again is how do I interact with my ex in front of my grandchildren? Um, so we want to talk about that. So let me first introduce to you Dr. Jenny Tates, clinical instructor of psychiatry at UCLA. Dr. Tates, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Okay, so let's walk me through this. We're, I kind of kind of painted the picture of this. You've been in a relationship for decades. You get a divorce. We call gray divorce here in, in Canada. Um, they have to deal with their grandchildren, maybe at the same time, same place. It kind of gets awkward. Walk me through um, what are the effects of being single has on people, particularly ending a relationship that you may have been in for decades. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you about this because I think there's a lot of misconceptions and um, so many people have this sense that, you know, me and my ex didn't get along for decades. That's going to sort of be permanent. We're never going to be able to reconcile. And uh, children, adult children can worry about having their both of their uh, parents at uh, events like children's birthday parties and um, their children's weddings. And it's really not fair to both the divorcees and also their children um, to anticipate this prolonged period of torture. And as an alternative to sort of holding resentment and grudges, we can sort of start over and mindfully um, just begin this relationship right now. Um, a big part of my message in how to be single and happy is really focusing on what you want your life to be about and your life values. Um, and so I'm guessing so many people really care about being kind and connected to their family. And we don't want to miss opportunities with family because we're avoiding our ex. You know, I'll, I'll take on some of that blame uh, because my, my children's uh, grandparents on their mother's side are divorced. And so 
I used to tiptoe around how do we have these special events, birthdays, special events, so forth, and, and how do we make sure that there's no conflict, no issues? And I, I took it upon myself to try to navigate that, but it's really not my job to navigate that, I thought, at the end of that. I said, so how do you uh, navigate family time if if you're spending time with your grandchildren and you have a divorced uh, and you've divorced your spouse and, and they're going to be around too? You know, I think it's really important to do some soul searching and think about what do I want right now at this point in my life? I'm retired. Um, what is it that I want my life to be about? And being single is not a problem. Um, actually, interestingly enough, marriage only increases happiness on average by about 1%. <laughs> but loneliness is profoundly uh, depleting and has incredibly negative effects on health and emotional health as well as physical health. So if you want to be connected and you want to be healthy, um, can you do some soul searching and ask yourself at this point, am I willing to sort of let go of past pains and try to maybe, you know, co-grandparent or, uh, you know, consciously uncouple in a way that's um, therapeutic and compassionate to yourself and the other person by sort of um, maybe even having a direct conversation. You know, a a child could certainly uh, talk to their parents or grandparents can sort of talk to each other about, look, you know, we we weren't good as a a romantic couple, but we certainly can manage together as co-grandparents. And that would be for both our personal wellness as well as the wellness of the rest of the members of our family. I like how you use the word soul search. So let's kind of dig into that for a little bit. What's the maybe first two things an individual needs to do to start that soul searching process? You know, this is such a good point. Uh, A lot of times people inadvertently focus on goals, what I want to get. I want, you know, to be the parent at the kid's birthday party, the grandparent at the kid's birthday party rather than have my, you know, be there with my ex. Rather than focusing on what you want to get, what do you want to give? What do you want your life to stand for? What, you know, I know this sounds a little bit morbid and it's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to be sort of inspiring, what what do you want your life to stand for? How do you want to be remembered at your funeral? Do you want to be remembered as a person that held on to every detail of uh, bad blood for decades? Or do you want to be the person that sort of embodies forgiveness and can start anew? And that's not giving in. It's choosing choosing to you know live your best life. Great point. We have a, a piece in our in our investment practice and our uh, wealth management practice called the legacy bucket. And a, a lot of times people think the legacy bucket is the amount of money you pass on, but many times it's how you want to be remembered. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is you know, um, when you really practice mindfulness, you know, let's say you eat strawberries every morning for breakfast, but, you know, if you really practice mindfulness, you sit down to eat your strawberry, and it's like for the very first time you really taste it. And... People are constantly changing. We're always evolving. If you could sort of see your ex in this new, like, sort of non-judgmental beginner's mind, we call it, um, with curiosity and um, without this, like, sort of, like, story that your mind creates that might not be true in this moment, um, you can have a lot more fun, and so can the rest of your family. Um, and a huge part of being sort of single and happy is feeling connected to your life and living your life without this sense of missing out, and you certainly will miss out by um, maintaining animosity. That's well said. So now there are many Canadians and Americans who are newly single. They just went through divorce. They don't want to get back out there and find someone else that's not on their agenda at this point in time. 
How can you find happiness if you're newly single and don't want to start looking for that someone else? You know, I love that. And actually, this is a huge point that I think, you know, popular culture um, tends to you know, misunderstand. Happiness comes from your values, like living according to your values. It comes from your activities. It comes from your relationships. And activities and relationships don't hinge on coupling. You could, you know, pursue the activities that you used to enjoy or that you've always wanted to pursue, you know, design a really great schedule for yourself, whether it be, you know, jogging or art classes or going to a book club and really plan events with people. It's not, uh, you don't need a partner, a romantic partner to go to a delicious dinner. And you also don't need um, a lover to feel connected to people around you. You can feel profoundly um, close to meaningful friendships. That's fantastic. I want to thank you for joining us today. What's a, what great insight you brought to us when it comes to suddenly single, I call it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And it's, it's you know, one of the things that um, I inspired me is I, my, grand, my parents are um, uh, divorced and they divorced when I was quite young. And, you know, 30 years after they contentiously uncoupled, they, uh, you know, are co-grandparenting in a really beautiful way. And um, it's definitely possible and it doesn't matter how bad the relationship was if you really want to focus on your grandchildren and your children's um, sense of, uh, you know, a Joyful Connected family, you can sort of start over at any time. That's fantastic. That's Joyful Connection is what we're looking for. Thank you, Dr. Jenny Tates. She's a clinical instructor of psychiatry at the at UCLA, so I'm really glad to have her on board. And, and I like the fact that she brings up the points about your value system and focusing on that for happiness versus trying to be with somebody in a romantic way or any as a partner uh, when you're not ready for that. So a very interesting piece. We're going to hear more and more research about this with the aging demographic, with more people going through divorce and separation as you are in gray divorce area or over the age of 60 and going, going through a divorce. Very, very interesting piece. Now, when you're going through all these different changes, at the same time as you're going through uh, a change or transition into retirement, you're going to find that you have a lot of concerns. One of the concerns that people have is how are they going to protect their income? Because they need that cash flow for the rest of their lives. How are they going to make sure that they're not going to run out of money? How are they going to make sure that in the event of a healthcare issue, they're protected, that they have the money to pay for that because maybe the government won't be there for them when they need to spend the, uh, their, their own time in a healthcare facility or with specialized healthcare professionals. Those are the kind of things that we have to think about. And those are, are, are problems that people are having. We have some solutions for you. And we're going to talk about those solutions at our seminar on Tuesday, May 29th. 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can go online to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Now, stay tuned after the break. We're going to talk about how you can properly transfer your health coverage when moving in between provinces. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. 
people move from provinces to provinces. People are looking at retirement and they're trying to focus on what, where their destination of choice will be uh, when they retire. And people are moving for, for their jobs as well. And some, something that we forget sometimes is that the, the, the healthcare systems that we have in Canada are provincially based. It's not a national healthcare system. So there are some nuances or concerns that you should have as you move from one province to another. And so we need to have that discussion about an understanding about what could happen. And so we wanted to bring in Paul Taylor. He's a patient navigation advisor at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so how do you change your health care if you decide to move from one province to another? So, as you mentioned, there, each province has its own health care system. So when you move to a province, you have to get a health care card in that particular province. Um, provinces have different services. So they've set up a system to prevent people from basically... Uh, basically shot, uh, doing medical tourism within Canada. For example, if, for example, there's a longer wait list for maybe hip surgeries in one province, people could simply walk across the border and get the hip surgery there, you know, in another province versus there. So to prevent that from happening, you have to basically be in a province for three months before you can get your provincial health card. Um, in the interim period of time, your former province will cover medically necessary procedures by doctors. And say, for example, you have to go to the emergency department. They'll cover that. But they don't cover a lot of the extras. They don't cover things like, you know, home care if you might need that, um, a drug plan uh, if you're on a provincial benefit plan that gives you um, drugs. So it's really just the basic medical stuff. Uh, And so many provinces will actually recommend that you buy insurance in this transition period of time. But it does, it can lead to really difficult problems for people. Um, For example, say I live in one province and uh, and maybe I'm working and I develop cancer and I have terminal cancer, I want to go back home to my home province to die essentially. Well, you have to wait, you still have to actually wait three months before you can get palliative care, hospice care, like home care. And there was an issue recently in the province of Ontario where a patient had died um, in, this, in these kind of circumstances. They were, uh, and so it became an issue. And the provincial government has recently changed the, this situation, just in Ontario, where you don't have to wait three full months to begin to get palliative care. So they've changed the legislation just recently, but it's not, but it, it's not like that in other provinces. So these are some of the problems that can actually happen uh, when you move from one province to another. So Paul, that was for palliative care. So Ontario's only changed that piece. They haven't changed the three-month rule for all, all services, correct? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. It's under, certain people have to qualify to be able to get that exemption, so to speak. Okay, let's go back to your hip surgery uh, piece because that's a very popular uh, topic or even knee surgery here in Alberta. Um, they, uh, there are many people who come to me and say, I have to wait way too long, uh, but the province next door, Saskatchewan, has, a, has an, an immediate opening. There's concerns about that same problem. You have to wait the three months before you get that. There's no coverage for that, is there? Uh, yeah, no, you would, you would have to wait. And the challenge is whether or not you actually... If, you're, if there's a wait list in the province that you, you know, um, if you, yeah, yeah, you're, sorry. Yes, you're completely right. You can't immediately go across the border and 
and get in line for another province. It just it, they just won't permit you to do that. And you can actually understand provinces are trying to protect, uh, you know, their budgets, and they don't necessarily want people coming in from another province if they are offering better benefits than another province. Are there are there particular services that will be more affected than others when you go from province to province? And you can give us examples of certain provinces that services are going to be restricted or or affected more. Well, one thing you have to think of is actually if you're on prescription drugs and say, for example, your province covers the drugs. So on certain drugs, you can get a three-month supply. And so before you move, you load up on your three-month supply. Now, there are certain drugs where they don't allow you to do that, certain narcotic medications you can't, you know, take, they won't give them under a certain period of time. So you have to think about your... Your, uh, your drug plan. Um, and even if you don't have a uh, drug plan, say you're as an individual, you have to find another pro- uh, province to uh, a, a, a pharmacy in the, your coming province, in your new home province, to transfer your, uh, your, prescription. your prescriptions to. Yeah. So these are the kind of things that you kind of have to think about, and you have to think about before you actually make the move. Uh, <laughs> Is there a way somebody can go online and see what services are covered and what are not? Because let's say you're in one province and your health care, your, um, let's say here in Alberta, your Alberta health care card covers, insures a certain service. It may not be covered in other provinces. Is there a way we can find out, maybe online or somewhere, of what services are covered? What you would do is go to the website of the Ministry of Health of the province that you're going to. And in certain cases, it will state what's covered and what's not covered. But certain things are, you know, a bit kind of gray areas in terms like, for instance, um, um, uh, you know, like ambulance coverage and stuff like that, you know, whether or not it's going to be covered. So certain things, you may be able to find some information on the website of the province that you're covering. But there's something also that people really need to think about. Even when they're traveling in another province, um, they should be actually getting insurance. Say, for example... And, you know, you have an accident. Maybe you're in an automobile accident. So your, your medical bills in the, in the emergency department will be covered by your home province, uh, you know, more than likely. Um, uh, but say you have to fly home. Say you have to be, you know, like helicoptered home to your new home, home or your old home province. Who's going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. You'll pay for it out of pocket unless you actually have insurance. So even travel within Canada, you need insurance. That's some great advice, you know, Paul. I think there's maybe one or two things that you could leave with our listeners that they should be aware of um, when they go through provinces, either for traveling or for relocation. What are the maybe one or two things that they should be aware of? Make sure that you actually, you may actually need to buy private insurance to augment uh, what you may not get uh, that you, uh, you also need to look about your prescription costs and things like that and moving them beforehand or loading up with your prescriptions if it's all possible. So those are the kind of things you kind of be thinking about. But um, it, the big challenge, though, is actually for seniors and moving seniors mm-hmm. from one province to another. But anyways, that's a, a kind of another matter. No, that, that, that is a, a big matter. You're seeing more mobility between provinces of people over the age of 65 than ever before. Um, and so that's a great point. Paul, thank you for joining us today. You're most welcome. Bye-bye.
Paul Taylor. He's a patient navigation advisor at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. This is a concern. This is the issue. There's going to be costs coming in. When you are transitioning to or living in retirement, there are things that creep up on you in your in your lifestyle or your expenses that you never thought about. And this is one of them, going from province to province. You're visiting your, your grandchildren or children from a different province, and you're, you're there for a few months. You may not be covered for certain things. So these unexpected or extraordinary expenses to protect the lifestyle you have will come potentially out of pocket. So how do you make sure your income lasts forever? How do you make sure that you have the growth in your portfolio and, and minimizing tax and protecting your health care along the way? We're going to discuss that on Tuesday, May 29th. 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats for this session. Give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can go online to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Now, after the break, we'll be hearing about a different type of transfer. Find out if you get hit with a big tax bill by transferring or inheriting a foreign pension. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And uh, we're seeing more and more uh, now people moving across the border, USA and Canada. People are living around the world. Uh, and you have issues where you've been working abroad, come back, and you can transfer your pension from that other company in a different country. Or you've inherited maybe a pension from another country and there are some tax consequences you need to know about inheriting or transferring foreign pensions and there was a a, a great piece that our that our managing director of tax and estate planning at CIBC financial planning advice Jamie Golenbeck put put out and I, I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about that so Jamie welcome to the show thanks for having me all right so let's talk about this we're, we're seeing it more I'm in my practice when I deal with retirees and so forth uh, they, they've been traveling and wor- working abroad and they come back to to Calgary and they want to transfer their let's let's use US their IRA or their 401k and sometimes even some people receive inheritances of that you're seeing some stuff coming out of there there's there's some tax issues we have to be aware of tell us more about that yeah so it's, it's an issue that's been around for years and I just highlighted it just recently because of an interesting tax case that was just reported in the tax courts of Canada uh, but before we get into the case uh, the general rule is that when you receive an inheritance, just like a straight inheritance, it's tax-free. So if you leave your kids money in Canada, tax-free. If you receive an inheritance from someone living in the United States, it's tax-free. If you leave uh, from anywhere in the world, uh, someone from China or Hong Kong leaves you money, uh, that cash is tax-free. So we don't have any kind of recipient inheritance tax in Canada. It is a totally different matter if you receive a foreign pension. We have a very specific tax rule in our tax law that says an individual who receives, uh, even on the death of a parent, for example, or uh, someone living overseas, a foreign pension, then that foreign pension is taxable in Canada. And that's the general rule. Now, there are exceptions to that depending on what you do with that income. So, for example, the most common scenario that we see is someone living in the United States because of, of course, the mobility between Canada and the U.S. And the question that came up in this recent case just a couple of weeks ago was whether an individual who's living in Canada had to pay tax on his father's IRA, individual retirement account, very similar uh, to an RSP. So contributions are tax deductible, the funds grow tax sheltered while invested in the account, and after age, in the U.S., it's 70 and a half, 
Uh, then there's an annual required minimum amount, similar to a RIF in Canada, in which the funds are required to be withdrawn. And so in this case, um, he received the IRA, if I understood correctly, and he and, and the uh, CRA taxed him for it. Well, that's right. So what happened was uh, his father died, and he inherited the uh, IRA. And what he did is he transferred into what's called an inherited IRA, which is a concept they have in the U.S. in his own name. This is the Canadian son's name. And uh, ultimately, in 2012, he brought the money back to Canada, and there is a U.S. withholding tax. Typically, it's 30% of the amount. So the taxpayer, assuming that this was an inheritance, just like any other inheritance, did not report anything about the IRA on his 2012 tax return. Of course, CRS found out about it, and they reassessed him. They, allowed, they uh, taxed him on the full fair value of the IRA, but did allow him the foreign tax credit uh, for the Canadian dollar equivalent of the taxes that were held in the U.S. So the taxpayer goes to court, and he objects. And he argues, no, no, I shouldn't have to pay tax on that. After all, this is an inheritance, and generally an inheritance, as we discussed earlier, is tax-free. So, so why is there that rule about pensions, foreign pensions, versus like anything else, any other type of asset? Because, again, this is a previously untaxed income. So this is an income entitlement um, which has not been taxed. So this is not like after-tax cash. This is pre-tax income, and it hasn't been taxed. So in a simple scenario, if let's say you were working in the U.S. and you put some of your income into an IRA, you wouldn't have paid tax in the U.S. and you wouldn't have paid tax in Canada. So why should you be allowed to receive that just because you moved to Canada tax-free? And so what came out of the tax uh, case at the end of the day? So what happened at the end of the day was um, the judge looked at everything and said, look, yes, it's an inheritance, and you received it on the result of death, but it didn't come from an estate. It came from an IRA, an individual retirement account. And there's a specific rule in the Income Tax Act in Canada that says a payment out of a foreign retirement arrangement, which is defined as an IRA in the Canadian tax law, is considered to be foreign pension income, and therefore it's clearly a payment out of a foreign plan, and must be taxable in Canada. We are going to allow you a withholding tax. So the question we ask now, based on this case, is could you have done things differently? Yeah. Because we're often asked, like, uh, if you have an IRA because you were working in the U.S. and you're moving to Canada, can we move it to an RSP, for example? The answer is yes, you can do it, but it's not always recommended. So imagine someone working in the U.S., and uh, they're not a U.S. person, they're just Canadian, and then they move back to Canada, they have $100,000 of, uh, of IRA there, they're now retired in Canada, and they want to bring it to Canada. So under the U.S. rules, there's a 30% withholding tax. If they're under 59 and a half, there's another 10%, but let's just pretend it's just 30%. And then for Canadian tax purposes, $100,000 included in income, and you get a full deduction for the amount that goes into the RSP. So there's no actual tax payable. The problem is you've now paid $30,000 in withholding tax to the U.S. Unless this individual has $30,000 of tax owing in Canada on something else, which might be unlikely if he's retired or if her only source of income is Canada Pension Plan or OAS, mm -hmm. then you are basically facing double tax. Gotcha. You're facing this 30% withholding tax in the U.S., which you can't get a credit for or very limited credit if you don't have lots of other income, and you're going to pay tax again. 
when you take the money out of an RSP or RIF. So I just caution everyone listening today that don't right away assume that taking the money out of the IRA and bringing it to Canada and to an RSP is necessarily the right thing. People need to speak to you and get the advice. Get proper advice from an investment and tax perspective before contemplating a transfer like this. And now there are many retirees here in Canada that have kept their IRA or that investment in the U.S. and now they are over the age of 71 or 70 and a half or they're maybe in a RIF position. That's when they've converted their RSP to a retirement income fund here in Canada. Do they, what do they do there? Do they leave it the IRA there or do they, can they transfer it to their RIF here? Yeah, same exact issue, right? You can do the same thing that we just talked about or just leave it. Most people choose to leave it, especially if the amounts are not material. Why not leave it? And then you pay tax on the foreign distributions. Uh, this is foreign pension income. You include it in Canadian return. You pay tax in the U.S. You get a credit against the taxes paid in Canada, and, uh, and you end up paying the higher rate of tax, essentially your Canadian tax. So unless there's an issue with sort of investment management or you, you don't have the investment options that you want in the U.S., or uh, most people generally leave it, especially if the amounts are relatively small. Okay, that's that's good to know. Uh, so when it comes to uh, foreign pensions outside of the U.S., anything that's come in your uh, your experience recently where where we've had to we have to be aware of? I know that in Calgary at least there's quite a few from the U.K. who've come down during the the oil boom and they've had pensions there. Are there other areas around the world that people should be aware of if they're bringing their pensions or trying to bring? Yeah, I mean to? there may be some unique differences country by country. I'm not an expert on international tax, but I can tell you that the general rule from the cases we've seen. And from the CRA views on this stuff is that most, if not all, foreign pension income is going to be taxable. So when you bring foreign income into Canada, uh, or even not into Canada, when you receive it, even if it's deposited into a foreign account, that is considered to be uh, Canadian taxable income and must be reported on your Canadian return. Great. Thank you very much, Jamie, for joining us today. Oh, the pleasure. Thanks. It's Jamie Golenbeck, Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Financial Planning and Advice. And that's what we're going to be talking about is tax and minimizing tax. Well, how do you profit and protect in these types of markets? We're seeing quite a bit of volatility uh, this week. And also throughout the last, let's say, 10 years, there's been a lot of things moving around. How do you protect your income? How do you grow your portfolio and minimize tax? We're going to talk about that on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to give us a call to reserve your seats. 966-8400, that's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Now join us after the break. We're going to talk about a study that looks at super seniors to find out, well, how we can live longer and healthier lives here on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money, and Canada has undertaken one of the biggest and boldest studies on aging in the world, and the data is just coming out. I'm interested in this because in my practice here, as an investment advisor, as a portfolio manager, and as a retirement transition specialist, I need to know what's happening with our aging demographic, with the Canadian seniors. Are they healthier? What's the costs, concerns, and issues that they have? Because my clients are all concerned about that. So let's bring on the expert, Dr. Susan Kirkland. She's a co-principal investigator of the Canadian Longitudinal Study of Aging based out of Dalhousie University. Dr. Kirkland, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So we've we've got some initial data. We've we've uh, people often think about getting older as a time of ill health, but that's not necessarily the case. So tell us about the people you're working with as part of the study. 
I'd be happy to. So um, we have been doing a study called the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, and uh, it's a very large study. We're following 50,000 men and women from across the country, and uh, we follow them fairly intensively, get a large amount of information from our participants, and every three years we go back to them and update that information, and we follow them over time for 20 years. So um, we have just um, completed, well, we're just about to finish the first follow-up, but we've released the data from the actual baseline. So this goes up to 2015, this information was collected. And uh, it's a wealth of information for both uh, academic researchers who are interested in, in the science of aging, but also for policymakers who are interested in using evidence to make decisions. So what was the study designed to find out initially? Ah, very good question. So initially it was a, a study that was developed around understanding the aging process. And to really understand uh, the trajectories over time and the ways in which people change as they age and the things that influence aging. And so it's all about understanding interrelationships. And previous studies in the past had, you know, collected a lot of information about health, but very little information on social aspects of people's lives or vice versa. And then there were another group of studies that had a lot of information on genetics, but no information on people's lifestyle or, you know, where they lived or what kind of social influences affected them. And so the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging really tries to put all of those things together because as we know, you know, aging is not just about health or not just about, uh, you know, the social aspects of, you know, where you live or who your family is. It's about all of the intersection of all of those pieces and what does the intersection tell us about how well you age. Okay, so, and the, sorry. sorry. The other thing that I was going to mention is that we follow people who are age 45 to 85 and we follow them for 20 years. And that's another thing that's different from a number of other studies in that we really want to understand aging from the midlife because we understand that, you know, you don't just become, for example, old at 65. <laughs> it really is about a lifetime of events and a lifetime of occurrences um, that, you know, that shape the way in which, uh, you enter into uh, an older age cohort. So tell me what results you've seen so far. Uh, well, we've seen some very interesting things. A lot of, um, a lot of the information that we have um, sort of is, is a documentation of things that we suspected or things that we knew. So, for example, we know that in general, people in Canada as they age are, are quite healthy and they consider themselves to be quite healthy. So, for example, almost 90% of the people in the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging answered that they felt that, in general, their health was either good, very good, or excellent. And when it came to mental health, it was even higher. Overall, 95% of people said that their mental health was either good, very good, or excellent. But what we see is that sometimes if you look at the overall population, you miss things. And so what we're particularly interested in is looking at subpopulations who might have a different response. And one of the things that we see, which is, um, which is something that we already know about, but is, is 
very um, clearly portrayed in our study is that older women don't do as well as the rest of the general population. And what's interesting is that women in general don't seem to do as well as men on a number of aspects when it comes to aging. But, for example, if you look at uh, marital status, in general, the population, it looks like the majority of the population is married. But then if you start to break it down by age and sex subgroups, If you look at the subgroup of 75 to 85, about 75% of men in that age group are married, but only about 35% of women in that age group are married. And when you think about what the impact of that has, and most of those women are widows because their husbands have died earlier, and you think about the impact that that has on, you know, their um, the fact that they may live alone or what it means for social interaction and social isolation, um, it has a huge impact. We also see in terms of um, uh, financial security, mm-hmm. we know that we see that the majority of Canadians indicate that they're actually doing relatively well in retirement uh, with their retirement income. But then again, when we start to break it down by age and sex, what we see is that there are vulnerable subgroups. And so, for example, um, overall, very few people indicated, only about 6% indicated that they, they felt that they didn't have adequate income to, to, to really live on. But if you look at it among that older age group of women again, it doubles to 12%. So it's really understanding the nuances, and I think this is really important when it comes to policy as well, because very often policy generally affects people across the board, but it doesn't affect people the same across the board. And understanding how policies are going to affect different subgroups is really important, because often there's unintended consequences. Yeah. So was there any um, surprise results that you got out of it? Um. I'm trying to think if there was anything that really shocked me. (laughs) I think one interesting thing that we found is that almost half of Canadians own a pet. And I think that that's, uh, I I thought it was a really interesting finding. I don't think it was particularly shocking. Um, But I think that, um, you know, when you think about things like health and physical activity and um, physical function and psychological well-being, things like having a pet actually make a difference in people's lives. And uh, I think that is really interesting. What I found in the report, according to your group, was that 34% of respondents, when it comes to their health, had high blood pressure. And then I was surprised to see that almost 16% had depression, which was higher than cancer or osteoarthritis, um, which or even diabetes. I think that was it was higher than diabetes as well. I I wouldn't have put depression as one of the the top two. And, and according to the re, the report I read, it was in the top two. I was quite surprised about that. Right, and 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 it is also surprising when you contrast that with the response that people had around their mental health and their health in general. Exactly. Um, but I but I think we do know. Um, that depression is something that is quite prevalent. Uh, we saw that depression is higher among women than it is among men. Um, and we, 
but we didn't see the same pattern in terms of depression increasing as people got older. We, in fact, saw that it slightly decreased as people got older. Okay, that's that's good to know. Was there anything that uh, that you came out of the results that we should learn from that we could change how we approach our own health or our own as we age? Uh, that's a very good question. I think probably the most worrying thing that we saw was that really only about 25% of Canadians meet the target for physical activity. Um, and, and again, this is something that we, we have heard a lot about. But, you know, it, I think that those are the kinds of things that are going to come back to haunt us in the future. Uh, you know, we saw that people... I, I think an interesting finding is that people often go in and out of retirement. Um, you know, they initially retire and then they return to work for various reasons post-retirement. And in the report, we called it unretirement. Um, and it was slightly higher among uh, men than among women. Okay. Um, and they did report retiring, about 25% of the population reported retiring for health reasons. But the majority of people didn't go back to work necessarily for health or for financial reasons. They went back, I think, primarily for um, engagement yes. and to feel that they were contributing to society. And I, I think that is a really important element. And the thing that we see increasingly is the importance of feeling engaged and feeling like you're a productive member of your community or your society. Um, and we need to be thinking about ways in which we can support that. You know, that's the good two tips right there. Stay engaged and stay active. Dr. Susan Kirkland, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Now, we have our seminar coming up on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. As you age, your needs for income, your needs for protecting your lifestyle, and in the event of a health issue, how are you going to pay for all that? We're going to discuss that at the seminar again, Tuesday, May 29th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seat, so give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. And let's say you've been listening to this show and you wanted to hear our previous uh, shows or you can't catch us on, on, on a live show. You want to hear one of our recorded or, or pre-recorded uh, viewpoints on that. We have a podcast. Now, you can access these past segments on morethanmoneyradio.com. Go to our website and, and you can look it up on there or get them delivered directly to you by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us on More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.